Welcome back, everybody, to the Hemingway List podcast. The podcast where we are reading War and Peace slowly for a year. I'm hungry, guys. I am so hungry. And I cannot... It's what? It's 7.57pm. Let's just call it 8pm, shall we? And I can't eat until probably around 4 or 5pm tomorrow. And I've already not eaten since this morning. Oh, my God. I've got to have an, um, a, a, I can't think of the name of it, but let's just call it what it is. A camera shoved up my butt <laughs> tomorrow morning, uh, which is fun. Um, nothing drastic. There's nothing like serious going on. Don't worry. But, um, you know, I'm 35. When you're 35, occasionally you've got to have a camera shoved up your butt. And tomorrow is a lucky day. Yippee. Hey, at least I get half a day off work. That's pretty cool, I guess. Not that I really, you know, I work from home, so that's not some huge joy. But uh, I'm just trying to find a silver lining. Anyway, the worst thing about the whole thing is just the fact that I'm so damn bloody hungry. I'm so hungry, and I'm like not even halfway to the point where I get to eat. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god, so anyway, let's cruise through this, read some stuff, and um, I'll go and just cry for a bit, cry myself to sleep, that's what I'll do. Warren Gavoffi says, oh wait, discussion prompts, discussion prompts for these. Now that we've read through the events leading to the war, how do you feel about Tolstoy's statement in chapter 1 that kings are the slaves of history? Are Napoleon and Alexander being used as instruments for the purpose of the unconscious swarm-like life of mankind? And how are you finding this book so far? It's been a while since we've had a war chapter. Are you happy to be back reading this side of things? Unconscious swarm-like life of mankind. Yeah, I see how these emperors and kings are sort of at the mercy of the crowd that they that they dictate. Um, but you know, these people also had more autonomy than probably anyone else alive. So. I don't know. I don't know how much I buy that. I think it's a symbiotic relationship, maybe. As it probably should be, really. They're in control of a people, and they represent what those people want, so they have to act in a way that pleases those people. That's that's the job, you know? That's, that's the situation. Warren Kavafi says, I've enjoyed the war sections, but they usually take a few chapters to get me... For me to get into the groove of things, personally, I felt this transition was a little more jarring, but I've liked the more recent chapters with Balashov and Napoleon. Napoleon seems to be more of a lunatic in these chapters than when we saw him at Austerlitz or when he made peace with Alexander. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I think Napoleon is just so fully convinced of his own superiority, add to that his cult of personality where everyone around him has drunk the Kool-Aid, and he's gotten to the point that he literally can't imagine anyone not agreeing with him. Starfire Galaxy says, Damn, Napoleon took Emperor Alexander's room and made sure to point it out to Balashov. Add that to his maniacal raving, and we've got a modest and mentally stable guy here. Slash sarcasm. I thought the questions was a good way of foreshadowing bad events, wanting to know which roads are the quickest to Moscow, how many churches are in the city, what places should they look for if they were to go there, and Balashov honestly answered them. Personally, I've found the synopsis on the back cover to be misleading. It's so much more than a love triangle. 
and that supposed triangle doesn't really get attention until book, a book or two ago. Had War and Peace not been published as it, at its great length, I think people would criticise it more realistically and in depth than giant classic book equals one of the greatest of all time. Um, yeah, it's hard to judge classics by modern standards, so it's a lot of the books that are up in the greatest of all times for me uh, are lacking <laughs> in a lot of ways. Brothers Karamazov was a great example for me. It was just about the worst murder mystery I've ever read, if you read it as a murder mystery. Not that it is one, but it has a murder mystery in it, and it's bad. And then all of the philosophical, you know, waxing lyrical just didn't do anything for me. And if you remove those things from the book, there was nothing left. It felt unfinished. Um, but hey, that'd be in the top five of all time. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Same with Wuthering Heights. I thought that was quite poorly written. Um, quite sloppy in a lot of places. But we judged, I guess things were judged different back then. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I missed something. There are some classics on the list which I do genuinely think are fantastic books. I think, you know, things like The Catcher in the Rye, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, The Great Gatsby. These are all actually fantastic books. Hemingway was himself an amazing writer. Kara Kikar says, It seems so odd receiving the enemy as a guest. This gentlemanly charade, as if war is just another diversion, I find it kind of sickening. Fair, yeah. They were gentlemanly, though. I don't know if it was a charade. I think they were very chivalrous. Extremely so. Maybe more so than, you know, any other time in history. That was like the currency of the time was... was um aristocracy also I think there is a lot of respect between these enemies you know Russian the Russian society is so influenced by the French Napoleon was a great leader and seen as a great leader even by his enemies so there's this kind of mutual respect there for having a war but I don't think there's like you know that vile that vitriol that you see in some wars where it's like a war of hate. It's more like a war of, I don't know, I was going to say necessity, but that's not that's not the case at all. But, you know, a war of circumstances, maybe. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm talking crap now. Um, chapter 8, let's go. After his interview with Pierre in Moscow... Ooh, we're back with the main characters. I'm excited. All right, here we go. After his interview with Pierre in Moscow, Prince Andre went to Petersburg on business, as he told his family, but really to meet Anatole Kuragin, whom he felt it necessary to encounter. On reaching Petersburg, he inquired for Kuragin, but the latter had already left the city. Pierre had warned his brother-in-law that Prince Andre was on his track. Anatole Kuragin promptly obtained an appointment from the Minister of War and went to join the army in Moldavia. While in Petersburg, Prince Andrei met Kutuzov, his former commander who was always well disposed toward him, and Kutuzov suggested that he should accompany him to the army in Moldavia, to which the old general had been appointed commander-in-chief. So, Prince Andrei, having received an appointment on the headquarters staff, left for Turkey. 
Prince Andre did not think it proper to write and challenge Kuragin. He thought that if he challenged him without some fresh cause, it might compromise the young Countess Rostova, and so he wanted to meet Kuragin personally in order to find a fresh pretext for a duel. But he again failed to meet Kuragin in Turkey, for soon after Prince Andre arrived, the latter returned to Russia. In a new country, amid new conditions, Prince Andre found life easier to bear. After his betrothed had broken faith with him, which he felt the more acutely, the more he tried to conceal its effects, the surroundings in which he had been happy became trying to him, and the freedom and independence he had once prized so highly were still more so. Not only could he no longer think the thoughts that had first come to him as he lay gazing at the sky on the field of Austerlitz, and had later enlarged upon with Pierre, and which had filled his solitude at Bugacharov and then in Switzerland and Rove, but he even dreaded to recall them and the bright and boundless horizons they had revealed. He was now concerned only with the nearest practical matters unrelated to his past interests, and he seized on these the more eagerly, the more those past interests were closed to him. It was as if that lofty infinite canopy of heaven that had once towered above him had suddenly turned into a low, solid vault that weighed him down, in which all was clear but nothing eternal and mysterious. Of the activities that presented themselves to him, army service was the simplest and most familiar. As a general on duty on Kutuzov's staff, he applied himself to business with zeal and perseverance and surprised Kutuzov by his willingness and accuracy in work. Not having found Kuragin in Turkey, Prince Andrei did not think it necessary to rush back to Russia after him, but all the same, he knew that however long it might be before he met Kuragin, despite his contempt for him and despite all the proofs he deduced to convince himself that it was not worth stooping to a conflict with him, he knew that when he did meet him, he would not be able to resist calling him out, any more than a ravenous man can help snatching at food. And the consciousness that the insult was not yet avenged, that his rancor was still unspent, weighed on his heart and poisoned the artificial tranquillity which he managed to obtain in Turkey by means of restless, plodding and rather vainglorious, ambitious activity. In the year 1812, when news of the war with Napoleon reached Bucharest, where Kutuzov had been living for two months, passing his days and nights with a Wallachian woman, Prince Andrei and Kutuzov. Uh, sorry, Prince Andrei asked Kutuzov to transfer him to West, the Western Army. Kutuzov, who was already weary of Bolkonsky's activity, which seemed to reproach his own idleness, very readily let him go and gave him a mission to Barclay de Tolly. Being before joining the Western Army, which was then in May encamped at Drissa. Prince Andre visited Bald Hills, which was directly on his way, being only two miles off the Smolensk High Road. During the last three years there he had been so many there had been so many changes in his life, he had thought, felt and seen so much, having travelled both in the east and the west, that on reaching Bald Hills it struck him as strange and unexpected to find the way of life there unchanged, and still the same in every detail. He entered through the gates with their stone pillars and drove up the avenue leading to the house as if he were entering an enchanted sleeping castle. The same old stateliness, the same cleanliness, the same stillness reigned there, and inside there was the same furniture, the same walls, sounds and smell, and the same timid faces, only somewhat older. 
Princess Mary was still the same timid plain maiden, getting on in years, uselessly and joylessly passing the best years of her life in fear of and constant suffering. Mademoiselle Boreen was the same coquettish, self-satisfied girl, enjoying every moment of her existence and full of joyous hopes for the future. She had merely become more self-confident, Prince Andre thought. Dessalis, the tutor he had brought from Switzerland, was wearing a coat of Russian cut and talking broken Russian to the servants, but was still the same narrowly intelligent, conscientious and pedantic preceptor. The old prince had changed in appearance only by the loss of a tooth, which left a noticeable gap on one side of his mouth. In character he was the same as ever, only showing still more irritability and scepticism as to what was happening in the world. Little Nicholas alone had changed. He had grown, become rosier, had curly dark hair, and when merry and laughing, quite unconsciously lifted the upper lip of his pretty little mouth, just as the little princess used to do. He alone did not obey the law of immutability in the enchanted sleeping castle, but, though externally all remained as of old, the inner relations of all these people had changed since Prince Andre had seen them last. The household was divided into two alien and hostile camps, who changed their habits for his sake and only met because he was there. To the one camp belonged the old prince, Mademoiselle Boreen, and the architect. To the other, Princess Mary de Salas, Little Nicholas, and all the old nurses and maids. During his stay at Bald Hills, all the family dined together, but they were ill at ease, and Prince Andre felt that he was a visitor for whose sake an exception was being made, and that his presence made them all feel awkward. Involuntarily feeling this at dinner, on the first day, he was taciturn, and the old prince, noticing this, also became morosely dumb and retired to his apartments directly after dinner. In the evening, when Prince Andre went to him, and trying to rouse him, began to tell him of the young Count Kamensky's campaign, the old prince began unexpectedly to talk about Princess Mary, blaming her for her superstitions and her dislike of Mademoiselle Boreen, who, he said, was the only person really attached to him. The old prince said that if he was ill, it was only because of Princess Mary, that she purposely worried and irritated him, and that by indulgence and silly talk she was spoiling little princess, sorry, little prince Nicholas. The old prince knew very well that he tormented his daughter and that her life was very hard, but he also knew that he could not help tormenting her and that she deserved it. Why does Prince Andre, who sees this, say nothing to me about his sister? Does he think me a scoundrel or an old fool who, without any reason, keeps his own daughter at a distance and attaches his this Frenchwoman to himself? He doesn't understand, so I must explain it, and he must hear me out, thought the old prince, and he began explaining why he could not put up with his daughter's unreasonable character. If you ask me, said Prince Andre, without looking up, he was censuring his father for the first time in his life, I did not wish to speak about it, but as you ask me, I will give you my frank opinion. If there is any misunderstanding and discord between you and Mary, I can't blame her for it at all. I know how she loves and respects you, since you ask me, continued Prince Andre, becoming irritable, as he was always liable to do of late. I can only say that if there are any misunderstandings, they are caused by that worthless woman, who is not fit to be my sister's companion." The old man at first stared fixedly at his son, and an unnatural smile disclosed the fresh gap between his teeth to which Prince Andre could not get accustomed. What companion, my dear boy, eh? You've already been talking it over, hey? Father, I did not wish to judge, 
said Prince Andrei, in a hard and bitter tone, but you challenged me, and I have said, and always shall say, that Mary is not to blame, but those to blame. The one to blame is that Frenchwoman. Ah, he has passed judgment. Past judgment, said the old man in a low voice, and it seemed to Prince Andre with some embarrassment. But then he suddenly jumped up and cried, Be off, be off, let not a trace of you remain here. Prince Andre wished to leave at once, but Princess Mary persuaded him to stay another day. That day he did not see his father, who did not leave his room and admitted no one but Mademoiselle Bourine and Tikhon, but asked several times whether his son had gone. Next day, before leaving, Prince Andre went to his son's rooms. The boy curly-haired like his mother, and glowing with health, sat on his knee, and Prince Andre began telling him the story of Bluebeard, but fell into a reverie without finishing the story. He thought not of this pretty child with his... sorry... his son, whom he held on his knee, but of himself. He sought in himself either remorse for having angered his father or regret at leaving home for the first time in his life on bad terms with him, and was horrified to find neither. What meant still more to him was that he sought and did not find in himself the former tenderness for his son, which he had hoped to reawaken by caressing the boy and taking him on his knee. Well, go on now, said he. Said his. Well, go on, said his son. Prince Andre, without replying, put him down from his knee and went out of the room. As soon as Prince Andre had given up his daily occupations and especially on returning to the old conditions of life amid which he had been happy, weariness of life overcame him with its former intensity, and he hastened to escape from these memories and find some work as soon as possible. So you've decided to go, Andre, asked his sister. Thank God for that, that I can, replied Prince Andre. I'm very sorry you can't. Why do you say that, replied Princess Mary? Why do you say that when you are going to this terrible war and he is so old? Mademoiselle Bourine, Mademoiselle Bourine says he has been asking about you. As soon as she began to speak of that, her lips trembled and her tears began to fall. Prince Andre turned away and began pacing the room. Ah, oh my God, my God, when one thinks who and what, what trash can cause people misery, he said with a malignity that alarmed Princess Mary. She understood that when speaking of trash, he referred not only to Mademoiselle Bourine, the cause of her misery, but also to the man who had ruined his own happiness. Andrew, one thing I beg, I entreat you, she said, touching his elbow and looking at him with eyes that shone through her tears. I understand you, she looked down. Don't imagine that sorrow is the work of men. Men are his tools. She looked a little above Prince Andre's head, with the confident, accustomed look with which one looks at the place where a familiar portrait hangs. Sorrow is sent by him, not by men. Men are his instruments. They are not to blame. If you think someone has wronged you, forget it and forgive. We have no right to punish. But then you will know the happiness of forgiving. If I were a woman, I would do so, Mary. That is a woman's virtue. But a man should not and cannot forgive and forget, he replied. And though till that moment he had not been thinking of Kuragin, all, all his unexpended anger suddenly swelled up in his heart. If Mary is already... Persuading me to forgive it means that I ought long ago to have punished him, he thought, and giving her no further reply, he began thinking of the glad, vindictive moment when he would meet Kuragin, who he knew was now in the army. Princess Mary begged him to stay one more day, saying that she knew how unhappy her father would be if Andre left without being reconciled to him, but Prince Andre replied that he would probably soon be back again from the army and would certainly write to his father, but that the longer he stayed now, the more embittered his, their differences would become. Goodbye, Andrew, Rep 
Remember that misfortunes come from God and men are never to blame, were the last words he heard from his sister when he took leave of her. Then it must be so, thought Prince Andre, as he drove out of the avenue from the house at Bald Hills. She, poor innocent creature, is left to be victimised by an old man who has outlived his wits. The old man feels he is guilty but cannot change himself. My boy is growing up and rejoices in life in which, like everybody else, he will deceive or be deceived. And I am off to the army. Why? I myself don't know. I want to meet that man whom I despise so as to give him a chance to kill and laugh at me. These conditions of life had been the same before, but then they were all connected, while now they had all tumbled to pieces. Only senseless things lacking coherence presented themselves one after another to Prince Andre's mind. Well, there we go. There's a chapter. Big beast of a chapter. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.